Amen. Well, church, you may have a seat. Well, I want to start off by saying happy Mother's Day, first of all, uh, before we jump into God's word and that passage that was just read. Uh, grateful, thankful for all the moms in here. I know that Mother's Day has a wide range of emotions for so many. And so I just want to uh, speak that out loud. I know that many of you are in here and it is a day of celebration and rejoicing as it should be. Uh, for some of you, it is uh, a painful day. Uh, where you're reminded that you desire to be a mother and maybe in the Lord's time he hasn't seen that fit to, to see that come to fruition. Maybe you're in here and it reminds you of a mother that you lost. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's a bittersweet day where you remember all the goodness, but you also remember that she's not here with you. And so wherever you find yourself here uh, today on Mother's Day, I want to acknowledge that, but it's my hope and my prayer today uh, that the Lord would meet with you. That as we open the word, as we sing songs of praise uh, here, as we just have done, that it would encourage your hearts to know uh, that God is near, that he is with you, and that he will meet you wherever you find yourself here this morning, uh, men, women, or children. So grateful that you're here. Uh, happy Mother's Day uh, uh, on the monsoon of a day. So it's like I, after 20 years of full-time ministry, uh, Right here, what we've got right here, this is like the true believers, because uh, if you're like a nominal believer, you don't come to church when it rains. It's just kind of a thing I've noticed, so welcome. I'm speaking to the faithful remnant here when it's raining that you've shown up on church, so so grateful that you are here. Uh, it was insane. Luckily, we had a small break where you could come in and not be completely soaking wet, but here it's coming again, so we may all need a boat uh, when we leave here. This has been a crazy crazy week with the rain. It is a exciting day. I am excited for what the Lord is going to have for us in the weeks, months, potentially years ahead. We are starting a brand new, I hesitate to even call it a series because series sort of communicates that it's going to be short. We are beginning a journey through the gospel of Luke as a church here at Risen. So if you are new with us, we want to say welcome. We are jumping right into the gospel story. So as we have landed in this new community, in this new building, in this new space, we really wanted to uh, root and ground ourselves in the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so we wanted to just spend uh, months together just examining and looking at uh, the story of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. We want it to permeate our hearts and our minds. We want it to change us. We want uh, the good news of the gospel of Jesus to make inroads in our hearts, in our minds. We want it to galvanize us as a people together. We want it to uh, be a catalyst for change in us that we can be sent out of here with the goodness of the gospel uh, being pressed in on us uh, in multiple different ways. And so we're excited about this journey. We began our church eight years ago uh, walking through the gospel of John. Uh, and I think it took us two years. Uh, so Luke is the longest of all the gospels. So I don't know, uh, buckle up. Uh, you can send me an email if it's like, God, it's just getting too long. Maybe we can make some bigger narratives here. But uh, we're excited about uh, just taking our time. We're not in a hurry to get through it. Uh, we want to savor all of it. Uh, Luke's gospel is so wonderful. It is so nuanced. There are so many wonderful themes that we see bubble up to the surface through the gospel of Luke. And we're going to be walking through so many of them together as a church family. And we're, prayer, we're, we're praying uh, that uh, 
God would have his way with us, that he would teach us, that he would not have us be the same. Each and every week when we encounter the story of Jesus of Nazareth, who is alive today, who is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father today, who has sent us his spirit, who has saved us, who has rescued us, who has purchased us, and now has called us to himself on mission for his good purposes. And so we're excited to walk through all of this together. Uh, Let me pray. Uh, as we continue, as we open God's word for the first time in Luke's gospel here together as a church. Lord, we are thankful for your word. Even in these introductory uh, sentences, God, there is so much here that we can glean because it's your word and it is good, it is profitable for us, it is living, it is active. Lord, you inspired it by your very spirit that now indwells within us. And so when we encounter it, God, it changes us. So Lord, do that today. Do that in the weeks ahead. Do that in the months ahead as we encounter the story of the living Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, rose again, saved us, and made us now all brothers and sisters under his banner in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, there's an old Irish poet. Uh, his name's Lewis McNeese. If you're into Irish poets, he's a great one. Uh, he writes this about his encounter with ancient writings. And essentially, in a large part, that's what we're doing. When we gather every week, we're, we're encountering these ancient writings. Uh, he says this, how can one imagine oneself among them? I do not know. It was all so unimaginably different so, so long ago. And I think to a great extent that sentiment is true on so many levels. When we read certain things, we read about antiquity, we read read ancient literature, sometimes it can feel so far off, sometimes it can feel so foreign or so alien. Uh, But the Gospels, I think, are different. When we encounter the Gospels, in the scriptures, in, these, in this ancient literature that we have in God's word, I think it's different, and I think it's different for two different reasons. One, we have four parallel accounts that we have in our scriptures, four gospels which each supplement each other, they each tell the same story, they each give us different perspectives, different lenses to see the life and the ministry of Jesus uh, with these great historical documents. So they're, they're parallel, and as we encounter them, All these details begin to fill in, all these different perspectives, all these different angles that we get to see Jesus, we get to see his life, we get to see his ministry, we get to see how he lived, how he loved, how he interacted with people, uh, the poor, the middle class, the religious elite, the political leaders. We get to see all these different facets from four different lenses through the different gospels. So we have all these parallel accounts. And the, the second reason why I don't think that uh, we, we feel lost with respect to understanding the gospels of the Lord Jesus Christ is particularly because of Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke's gospel is so foundational. It is so important because what we have in the gospel of Luke is painstakingly careful work of a historian giving us the story of Jesus, giving us the story and the narrative of Jesus of Nazareth. We get more details in Luke's gospel than we get in any other of the gospels. It is the longest of the gospels. There's all sorts of extra 
detail and nuance that Luke's, that Luke's gospel gives us that we don't have in some of the other gospels. He takes painstaking care, presenting to us Jesus our Lord. Jesus our Lord. Luke is a historian. I'm gonna tell you a little bit about Luke. This, this morning's gonna be a little bit different. It's a little more informational because we're dealing with the introduction. But from henceforth, from after this week, we jump into story. We jump into parables. We jump into the narrative of Jesus. So we're in the, the prologue, so to speak, in these first four verses. But it's important to set up who Luke is. A lot of us hear about Luke and we just, oh, it's Luke. And we just don't really have a, a, a firm grasp on who this person is and how we got this gospel narrative that we're gonna spend pot potentially over a year in. So Luke, he's a historian, he's a, he's a theologian, he is a, a physician, a doctor. Uh, and this gospel of Luke is acknowledged by general scholarly consensus uh, by not even just biblical consensus, but extra biblical scholarly consensus of one of the finest examples of historical writing in all of antiquity. So Luke's gospel is used as one of the finest examples of intellectually brilliant uh, piece of historical literature that even uh, non-biblical scholars look to, to see and to study and to understand the brilliance of the time of the Greek language that is given to us in Luke's gospel. It is highly regarded. It is highly touted as one of the finest pieces of literature in antiquity. So what we're experiencing, even if you're not a believer today, if you just are coming in from an ac a pure academic level, what you're experiencing and what you're interacting with is one of the finest written documents we have in humanity that's preserved for us and given to us. We, of course, know it as the inspired word of God. And that is an amazing statement. Um, and I think that's remarkable, the, the level of uh, respect that Luke's gospel in this document has, uh, given that we know very little about Luke himself. Uh, we know very little about his life. We, we know very little about where he came from. We do know he's a Gentile, meaning he's not Jewish. Uh, that's indicated by some other references to him. We know uh, that by his own admission, this is fascinating, this is, this is very important by his own admission, he was not, underline, he was not an eyewitness of the things that took place with Jesus. He did not witness it with his own eyes. Luke was a believer by faith. He was saved and he believed by faith, not by sight of the doing and the ministry and the work and, the, and all that Jesus had done, just like you and I. He was a Gentile, I'm assuming like most of us in here. And he came to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, just like you and I, not an eyewitness. Isn't that remarkable? And yet he gives us this document. So he didn't see with his own eyes, but he relied on other people. Uh, and then he writes this wonderful piece of literature. 
Um, we know that he was cultured. We know that he was educated. We know that he was a physician or a, a doctor. So he's got quite a resume in terms of the things that uh, went be, before him, before he came to this point of writing this gospel. And when you take something like the first four verses that we read this morning, they don't, they don't quite hit us like it maybe would in the ancient world, but it's spectacularly written. It is uh, precision, it is beautifully crafted Greek literature of the highest and most sophisticated Greek sentence some scholars say you will find in the scriptures or in all of antiquity. That's a big statement. So he was able to communicate with profound and precise language and write it down. He was intellectually brilliant. Uh, yet he was close and loved people, as we'll learn as we walk through this gospel. His heart was for people. Usually there's a disconnect there. Uh, his conversion was a bit of a mystery. Um, we don't know how he came to Christ. So that's a, that's a mystery. But it seems that when he finally came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, um, he came into the Apostle Paul's life. So him and Paul uh, crossed paths at some point. And when they did, uh, it seems that Luke was already very mature in his faith. He had a, a, uh, he had a robust understanding of Christ. He wanted to follow Jesus with his life. And he joined himself to Paul in Paul's missionary journeys. And he joined himself with loyalty and fidelity to all that the Apostle Paul was doing. As Paul, as we learned, as we studied the book of Philippians, his life's goal was to advance the gospel. Luke was there for much of that. Luke was a part of that. Luke was on many of these journeys with the apostle Paul. Um, and so a lot of times we don't realize that because that gives us a window into the kind of person Luke was. Uh, we have the famous passages in uh, Paul's epistles that often say we. And when Paul is referring to we in a lot of these stories, he's referencing Luke. That Luke was with him. That here is this faithful, committed disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ who also wanted to spend his life for the advancement of the gospel. And Paul references Luke by saying we. He doesn't even call him out by name. And many believe that that's on purpose because Luke didn't want to prop himself up to the early church as some hero. He wants Jesus to be the hero. He wants Jesus to be known. He doesn't say much at all about himself as he writes the gospel. He does a little bit in this introductory and then he fades to the background. It speaks to his humility. He says, I want Jesus to be known. I want Jesus to be made much of. So he views his ministry and his life as one that serves a humble servant of the kingdom of God, that he would serve in the background to advance the purposes and the name of Jesus Christ. We can all learn from that, can't we? That's Luke. He wanted to put others forward. He tells stories of countless others. He puts them forward. Many of the folks that we know and we treasure the stories in the scriptures we have, we only have from Luke's perspective. And we know their names, but oftentimes we don't know much about Luke. That speaks to his humility and his heart. We know that he was with Paul in Paul's second imprisonment. We know that he was with Paul shortly before Paul was martyred for the faith. 
because we find these pointed passages in 2 Timothy 4.11, for example, where Paul says, only Luke is with me. He is faithful. He's faithful when it gets hard. He's faithful to his other fellow ministers of the gospel. He stands and encourages them even to the end. Only Luke is with me. And then what happened to Luke after Paul's martyrdom is a bit of a mystery. Um, And it's fitting, I believe, as we begin this journey, as we look at this gospel that he comes in and then he kind of leaves and we don't really know where he came from and we don't really know where he goes afterward, but he leaves us this incredible gospel message that shines a beacon light on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church, through the guiding of the Holy Spirit, has used this so that we can keep discovering more and more and more of who our wonderful Savior is. So it appears that this uh, account is written somewhere in an early 60s AD, if you're a history buff. It is by far, like I said, the longest of all gospel documents. It has all kinds of extra details that we as the church love and we treasure. Chapters that don't exist in the other gospels. Uh, For example, uh, the nativity is one that we love. He gives us more details about the nativity, about the birth of Christ than we have in any other gospels and ones that we treasure, ones that the church uh, through millennia has, has treasured and thought about and preached on and, and read and thought of uh, every single year we have because of Luke. We have the story of Zacharias in the temple. We have Zacharias and Elizabeth as Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist. We have the story of the Annunciation to Mary. We have Mary's song, My Soul Magnifies the Lord, we get from Luke. We have Mary's time with Elizabeth, their exchange. We have the song of Simeon in the temple. We have Zacharias's singing. We have all of that because of Luke's account. There's all these details that Luke gives us, and it's a window into how Luke thought and how Luke is a gift to the church through the leading of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We have the story of Zacchaeus. We have the thief on the cross. All of these that are so treasured by the church we have in the gospel of Luke that we will all together be walking through, Lord willing. We have it as we continue the revelations of Christ on the road to Emmaus. We have all of the famous parables, many of them only found in the Gospel of Luke, the publican, the rich man, Lazarus, the parable of the prodigal son. Luke has given us a gift. Um, It is extensive, it is varied, it is beautifully structured, uh, wonderful literature. It's artistically designed on purpose in the highest of literary style and it is a well-reasoned gospel account. It is well-reasoned. Now, like I said, this is a bit more information-oriented here on Mother's Day, so it's just where it landed, I apologize. Uh, But as we get going, we're gonna see all these wonderful stories begin to come forth through the gospel of Luke. Uh, And it's more information oriented because it's in the beginning, because it's in God's word. This is still good and there's so much to glean. 
And so what he does in the very beginning, for us, it's separated into a few different sentences. Verses one through four is one long sentence in the Greek, beautifully structured, this amazing piece of literature in this introduction in classical Greek period structure, as the theologians like to call it. It's of the finest style in all of the New Testament, it's argued. Um, And what Luke is doing by giving us this introduction, church, and it's so good, and it's good for us today, right now, where we find ourselves in this cultural moment. Here's why this is important. Because what Luke is doing is he is writing this introduction and he is shouting from the rooftops, essentially. He is shouting, he's saying, take this as serious history. This is true. He's shouting that we would, uh, that he would demand a hearing, that we would take this and that we would listen to it and that we would consider it in the sea of all the things that are bombarding our minds, that are bombarding our hearts and that we give time for. Luke is saying, would you read this? Would you take it into account because it is reliable? This is a trustworthy, true document and I have carefully prepared it so that you might encounter the living Christ. That's his purpose. We need this purpose today, more than ever. We have so many things that come down the pipe that we wanna believe, that we wanna latch our lives to, that that wanna discredit this and that. And Luke is shouting from the rooftops. He's saying, this demands a hearing from you. Not from me, what's given to us. And he begins, he cites the precedents of other works. So he's setting up uh, almost an academic uh, introduction by saying, why should you believe me? Why should you take all this into consideration? Why, Why would you listen to this account that I'm giving to you? Why is this worthy of your time? In verse one, if you notice, I think it'll be on the screen. Verse one, he says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Therefore, he says, uh, I took into account all the things that were given. Uh, We don't know how many he took into account. All the things that were written and all the things that were given about and written about the Lord Jesus Christ, we know for sure that Mark's gospel would have been among them. It was one of the earliest gospels that is given to us. So he would have had Mark's gospel. And then he took all the other things that were written about Jesus and he took them into careful account as he is writing the gospel of Luke. We don't know how many, he doesn't tell us. And he says they were ordered accounts. He said, and I took advantage of them, meaning he read them over and over again. He poured over them like a good historian. He looked at them, he compared them, he, uh, he matched them up where there was alignment. And he goes on to say, um, he goes on to say, but even more than my historical method, he said, I talked to people that were involved. I got to know eyewitnesses. I spoke to those who walked with Jesus, who knew Jesus, who saw all that had happened. In the verse two, the, ne- the next verse, it says this, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So he had the eyewitness accounts and he got together the eyewitnesses. And they were eyewitnesses from the time of John the Baptist. 
And not only were they just sort of abstract eyewitnesses, but he gets down to even those who became ministers of the word, meant they were preachers of the word. And you may be sitting there thinking, well, doesn't that just sort of disqualify? Because they already sort of bought into this. It would be like asking you, the preacher, like what I think about Jesus. Am I gonna give like a positive sort of view? Well, of course, but you remember, if they aligned themselves with Jesus, who said he was king, all of them resulted in all of their believing and all of their proclamation of the gospel and all of their um, uh, going forth and, pr- and proclaiming that Jesus has risen led to their death. There wasn't a social acceptance for talking to these ministers of the gospel for them to just say the party line. It, it was costly for them. And Luke said, I talked to all of them. Um, as I compiled this. They were ministers. They were involved in advancing the gospel even at great cost to their own lives. They committed themselves to advancing the gospel. And then he says, um, what I've brought together is written tradition, written narrative that has been given an oral living tradition. He said, I've compared it. He probably, I would imagine, like a good historian, had his notebook and he was writing things down. He was compiling everything. He was cross-referencing everything. He compared all of these things. And he says, my work is based on solid history. It's trustworthy. So he is shouting to our world today that this is good, reliable history. It's true. It's true, church. It's not a fairy tale. Our faith isn't rooted in once upon a time. It's true. It is rooted in history. Jesus came, he lived, he died, and he rose again. And it is true. And Luke gives us this beautiful gospel to show us all of who Christ is and he willfully decided to do it. Uh, There's a famous story in New Testament scholarship by Sir William Ramsey. He doubted the historicity of Luke and Acts. Luke also wrote Acts. So you got Luke, the gospel, and then the sequel is Acts, the birth of the church. And so he gave us uh, the majority of our New Testament when you think about it uh, in terms of the volume of writing. And so Sir William Ramsey, he was like the top guy. Everyone, if there was a Twitter account, he would have had like 100 million followers, right? And he really doubted the historicity of, uh, or the validity of uh, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And so he set to study it. He set to like upend it and to disprove uh, Luke's findings. And now in a very famous conclusion, after years of his own study of Luke's findings, Sir William Ramsey writes this, Luke is unsurpassed in regard to his trustworthiness. Luke is unsurpassed in regard to his trustworthiness. In other words, it's accurate. I know a lot of us, we live in a world where nothing is true. Uh, Everything's relative. Whatever you feel is right. Here Luke is standing and saying, this is truth. This is true. This is true. And then he states his task as a historian at the beginning of verse three. He says, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And when he says orderly account, this is interesting, so catch this. What he's talking about is his historical method. He's talking about this. I'm gonna write an orderly account for you. 
Uh, and, he means, uh, and he means this, I'm not gonna write a chronological account for you. There's parts of it that are chronological, but that's not his aim. So Luke is saying, I'm going to, I'm gonna write and give you an account which is arranged theologically and topically and structured for a purpose. Now he says at the beginning, I didn't change the facts, but I've grouped all of this together, what you're about to encounter, what you're about to read, what is about to assault your heart and mind with these words, what you are about to find, I have structured it in such a way that it will impact your heart and mind on purpose for a reason. For ultimate impact. I've ordered it in this way. I've orchestrated it carefully. What I've said is from all the facts through the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the inspired word of God, and he gives us something that if we follow the flow and the logic given to us in the gospel of Luke, it will absolutely penetrate your heart and your mind. That's his aim. He tells us right up front. He states his purpose in verse four, and it's really a moral purpose because he's writing to Theophilus, if you remember. Theophilus, by the way, means lover of God. Uh, so we don't really know exactly who he is, whether he's uh, a friend, he's an acquaintance of Luke. We don't know if he's a believer or not. Many believe that Luke is writing this to convince or to uh, help Theophilus who's grappling with who God is and who Jesus is, that he would come to faith in Christ. Many believe he's writing to that end. So Theophilus means lover of God and this penetrating, ordered account of the gospel of Luke, he writes to convince him of this moral purpose. This moral purpose. Verse four. That you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. He says that you may know the certainty. That word certainty in the Greek and the original is actually at the very end. And in this beautifully structured introduction prologue that he gives us, it's the very last word that's given to us because it is the most impactful word. So it doesn't render that way in the English translation, but that word certainty is the one is the focal point, it is the driving force that you would know with certainty that you would follow this gospel story of Jesus of Nazareth and you would know with certainty in your heart who he is, what he's like and therefore what God is like and how God loves you and how Jesus has come for you and how he longs to save you and rescue you and all these beautiful things that we treasure as the church that you would know with certainty We live in a world that nothing is certain. It's in vogue that nothing is certain. The word certainty is sort of a bad word now. Um, And Luke is saying, I'm writing this for you, most excellent Theophilus, O lover of God, that you might be certain of the things that have been taught to you. The same is true of us. Church, as we walk through this, through the spirit of God, he would give a certainty about who Jesus is, who God is, how he's made you, the world that we live in, what he's calling you to and toward and for, what the church is all about, how we're to gather, how we're to love and serve and care for one another. Um, He would make us certain in a world of uncertainty. That's a beautiful thought. That's worthy of our time. 
that's worthy of gathering together under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ that in a world that is certain of nothing, he would give to us certainty. So that's what I pray the Lord will do through our time together in the Gospel of Luke. And so the question uh, is really not this. It's not, well, what are we gonna do with this Gospel? How are we gonna uh, arrange it? How are we gonna divide it up? Really, the question that I want all of us to walk in here asking, and we've said it before, are you expectant to have the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ do something to you? Because we're gonna encounter Jesus of Nazareth in here. And he has lived the most compelling life ever written down. He is the son of the most high God. What he has accomplished, what he stands for, how he loves, that he is sovereign. All the things that we're going to encounter, all the stories will make impact on us in a profound way. And I don't want us to miss it. What is the gospel going to do to you in the months ahead? Walk into this place ready to hear and ready to experience the risen Lord Jesus Christ through his holy and inspired word. Now, as I mentioned, he's not only an accomplished historian, he's a subtle theologian. Um, we touched on that a little bit before, but how he arranges this gospel is remarkable. Um, he arranges it for the best impact, for the best theological impact. For example, the opening two chapters, which deal with the nativity, which we uh, all encounter at some point uh, during the Christmas season, have 10 divisions, five of them before the nativity, five of them after the nativity, and each of those are broken into quintets, and they're paired off uh, in pairs, and they, uh, and they work with each other, like promise and fulfillment. And that's put together in this subtle way. And we don't necessarily read it as we're reading the narrative, but it's structured so beautifully so that as we're reading it, as we experience it, as we hear it, it begins to influence our hearts theologically. So Luke has a theological purpose in doing this. He wants us to teach us about God. Well, what are some of his theological purposes that we're going to encounter in the days and months, maybe years ahead? Well, Matthew's main purpose is royalty, the gospel of Matthew. So we got the royal thread of the Lord Jesus. Uh, we have uh, Mark's is power. It's this fast pace, the power of Jesus, that he is a powerful one and he can uh, do all these miraculous things. John is revealing God as God. He goes all the way back to the very beginning of the creation of the cosmos and links Jesus there at the creation of the very world and air that we, believe, that we breathe. And Luke, one of the main themes that Luke gives to us is love. It's love. And God's love remarkably shines through. We're gonna see it in the parables that we're gonna encounter. The love of God, the love of Jesus he has for others. The love of God for sinners. And it's meant to impact our hearts with the great purpose of the love of God through the sending of his only begotten son, Jesus our Lord. It's so good. There's also another theme, the offer of salvation that we're gonna encounter again and again. Um, it's a prominent theme in Luke. It's more prominent, the, the idea of salvation than in any other gospel. In fact, the word salvation isn't used in Matthew or Mark. It only appears once in John, but six times the word appears in Luke's gospel, salvation. 
Not only that, the verb to save also pops up over and over and over again. It's saying that he has come to save his people. He's come to offer salvation. Um, we see it, the, the Samaritans receive the grace of God. The angel comes on the scene and says that he has come to, to save his people from their sins. We see Jesus heal, not just the Israelites, but the Gentiles. And what you see is that salvation begins to go out to the world. It's not just for a specific group of people that all look alike and talk alike and live in a certain place, but it's for all people, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Salvation goes out, goes forth from Jesus. His purpose is to save, is to save every tribe, tongue, and nation. Luke also records Jesus's repeated references to the cross that show up even at the very beginning with Simeon's prophecy. And from that point on, at the very beginning, when the cross is put in view at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, it just gets closer and closer and clearer and clearer and clearer. And that is by design so that we would understand one of the theological themes that we're gonna see and walk through in the gospel of Luke is the atonement. That we are saved through the shed blood of another. Through the substitute, the sacrifice of this one that has come. He gave his life that we might live. We're also gonna read and see and encounter in a beautiful way, church, the Holy Spirit. Um, the references of the Holy Spirit are all over. It starts at the very beginning. We have John the Baptist who is in Elizabeth's womb and he says that, that the, the baby in the womb leaps when he encounters Jesus through the power of the Spirit, we see um, the Holy Spirit come upon Simeon and he sings this nightly prayer. We see Jesus' conception with Mary when the Spirit descends upon Mary and she conceives by the Spirit. We see Jesus baptized in the Jordan and the Spirit descends on him like a dove. Uh, and we see the spirit of God drive Jesus out into the wilderness where he meets the tempter and he conquers the tempter, does what we cannot. Um, and then finally, if you count uh, the sequel to Luke's gospel, we see in Pentecost, the sending of the spirit and the birth of the church. Luke is gonna teach us about the spirit of God. We don't talk a lot about it, but we're gonna encounter the Holy Spirit through this gospel. And we're gonna learn about what it means to be people led and guided by the Holy Spirit, one of the Trinity. Um, so he teaches us these wonderful things, church, that we're gonna be walking through about love and about salvation and about atonement by the cross of Christ and about the Holy Spirit. Now, this morning is a prologue. Um, it's a little didactic, but after this, we're gonna jump right into the story of Jesus of Nazareth. And church, I believe we won't be the same after we encounter him. My prayer is that we wouldn't just, we wouldn't be the same group of people that just sort of uh, gather and leave, that we would long to encounter the love of God through the Lord Jesus Christ as we gather under his banner each and every week as we open up his word, that it would impact our hearts and our minds in such a way that it wouldn't just be a thought as Jelana was encouraging us earlier, but it would be something that we would live out in obedience because of all that he has done. Now, Paul also called him the beloved physician, Colossians 4.14. 
And I believe that was one, because obviously he was a doctor, but two, he was um, the physician of souls as he walked on these missionary journeys, as he advanced the gospel. So Luke, yes, had brilliant ideas. He crossed every T, he dotted every I, he was accurate. He, he, he had it all down. Yet throughout all of this gospel, you were gonna see an emphasis on his care for people, his interaction with people, how people love one another, how they begin to serve Jesus. We're gonna see all of these individuals mentioned, all these stories mentioned, they hinge and they center on people, not just ideas, because our faith is not just an idea. It is birthed out in who we are and how we live. And Luke understands that. And he gets his theological point to go from the mind to the heart to the legs and arms. And it's a living, breathing example of the gospel of the Lord Jesus as his people live all of these things out and experience the good of God, the good of Jesus. So many people are mentioned Um, He cares about people. Another notable thing that we're gonna encounter is very rare uh, in ancient writing is in the Gospel of Luke, he does not neglect naming and explaining in great detail the wonderful ministry and the love of Jesus of the women of the first century. We hear names of women all through Luke's Gospel. Um, Mary, Mary, Elizabeth at the very beginning, Anna, Martha, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, the widow of Nain, the daughters of Jerusalem in general that he speaks of, the women of the parable, these are the people focused and brought to attention in the Gospel of Luke. We also read about children, another marginalized group in the ancient world, children. We read wonderful narratives about the love of God for children. We read about infants in the womb. We read about Jesus as a baby, this paternal tenderness, loving character qualities that come out as we read about children. Luke is the only gospel that gives us information about Christ's boyhood and as a child. We also are gonna learn uh, about how Jesus loves the poor. Um, the fourth chapter, well, the whole thing begins in poverty. Um, it's a story that begins in poverty. And we're gonna learn that God cares for the poor. The fourth chapter, Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he announces that he will go out to preach the gospel to the poor. And he follows the next couple of chapters and the Beatitudes. He doesn't give Matthew's version of it where Matthew renders blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke's renders blessed are the poor. The poor. The marginalized. The forgotten about. Not just the poor in spirit, but the poor. He has a great heart for those that are hurting. We see it in Mary and Joseph and their offering of the poor. We see it in the shepherds and their poor lowly estate. Luke wants to know that Christ and his heart is bent toward the poor. And church, this is, maybe you might not come back next week, but this is a warning to all of us that as we encounter the gospel of Luke, um, we are going to read warning after warning about riches and chasing riches, and chasing the love of money. 
and chasing after material things at the expense of the love of the least and the lost. And Luke is going to assault our hearts and minds with that message because that is near to the heart of Christ. And so to our wealthy congregation, and you may be sitting here saying, well, I'm not wealthy. If you own a car, globally, you're wealthy. So to our wealthy congregation, he longs to teach us things that will make us uncomfortable. They'll make me uncomfortable. And again, my heart is that we would not be the same. That we wouldn't chase riches at the expense of loving people. He's a doctor of souls. And then lastly, uh, as we conclude, what we're gonna experience and see is that Luke's gospel is a singing gospel. Uh, I don't know if he was a musician, but maybe Luke the musician. He's always giving us accounts of people singing songs. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Um, you find Mary as the angel announced to her all that was gonna happen by the Holy Spirit. And we have this wonderful song that Mary sings and she says, my soul exalts the Lord and she breaks into this beautiful song, rejoicing in the Lord in her humble estate. Zechariah, when he gets his speech back, at the birth of his son John, or John the Baptist, he sings another song that's referred to in church history as the Benedictus. Actually, Zach Harrisberger is going to preach, and I was like, Zach gets to preach Zach's song, which is going to be fantastic, right? The guy that sings for a living. So this is going to be beautiful. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be electric. Um, Simeon goes to the temple. Uh, and Jesus is brought to the temple and this baby Jesus is placed in his arms and he sings a song. He says, now let my soul depart in peace. He's like, I've held the son of God. I can go in peace now. This is what I've been waiting for. His soul, his soul erupts into song. Angels from heaven when Jesus arrives sing glory to God in the highest. Glory to God. Joy is found and is seen all over through these songs. It's this overflowing of, of joy of the found lost coin, of the found lost sheep, joy in heaven of lost sinners being found through the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel begins in song and rejoicing and ends in rejoicing. So the question for us as we consider the weeks ahead as we encounter this gospel, is what will the gospel make of us? Are you ready to have the risen Lord Jesus come and do a work on your heart and your mind so that it might change how you live, how you operate, how you love, how you treat people? And not just a religious exercise of showing up and leaving and then doing it all over again and again. It's so much more. He wants to change us. He wants to assault our hearts and minds and bend us to the image of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He is good and he is worthy. He is longing to convince us of this moral purpose that Jesus can save, that Jesus went to the cross, that Jesus died the death that we deserved and that we by faith can now enter into and, be, uh, and have the Holy Spirit just illumine our hearts and our minds and we can be a people of rejoicing, that we can care about the things that God cares about just like his son did. And he invites us into this wonderful story 
this wonderful journey that is not just a journey of intellectual ascent, but it is a journey that goes from your mind into your heart into how you live and breathe and operate with each other each and every day so that we, like Mary at the beginning, may encounter God through the Spirit and say, my soul magnifies the Lord. What will the gospel make of you? Church, as we invite the band to come back up and we end in a time of praise and singing and rejoicing. I want us to bow our heads and go before the Lord and pray now. And would you pray that the Lord in his goodness would today make you someone who rejoices in the goodness of God in your life and may it spill over into song as we're about to sing. Ready your hearts for what we're about to sing so that we would be a people that would blow the roof off, of, off this place, that the, the rain wouldn't drown out our voices, but our singing and rejoicing would drown out the very rain. That would be a pleasing sound to our Father. Pray that over the, the months ahead that the gospel story would change you that you would hear of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, you would hear of the character and the nature of who God is through Christ and it would make inroads in your heart that the Holy Spirit would land on you in a way that you would never anticipated and it would change your affections to be the very affections and mind of Christ. And may we be a people that impact this world and this community around us and even just the people in this room, may we love with the love of Christ. Would you quietly now in this, this stillness uh, just pray that God would do a work on your heart and on your mind as we encounter his living and active word. God, you are good. I pray that as we meditate and think on your word, that as Luke wrote those many years ago, you by your spirit would give to us certainty of who you are. And it would be an anchor for us in hard days and in dark days. And it would be our very rejoicing in the good days, knowing that you are with us through it all. Lord Jesus, I am so excited about reading and spending time examining, thinking, praying, and Lord willing, living out your gospel in this church family together. May you do a work, a mighty work in and through us. In Christ's name, amen. Church, let's stand together and rejoice.